The fury of the virus illustrates the folly of war. It is time to put armed conflict on lockdown and focus together on the true fight of our lives. Dear listener, we find ourselves amidst a true global crisis. Our interconnectivity is more apparent than ever. Nothing seems what it once was. Now is the time to radically realize a world which holds violence and conflict and stops excluding women and youth. As Chris continues to breathe, peace builders worldwide continue to work on a more peaceful world for tomorrow. This season is all about the peace builders making this needed change possible. Listen to their inspiring stories and reimagine this new reality with us. Welcome to the Peace Corner podcast, brought to you by GPAC, UNOI Peace Builders, CSPPS, and Pass Peace. Welcome to the Peace Corner podcast. I'm Xander with Plus Peace, and I'm excited to sit down with John Rudy to talk about human security, COVID-19, and recent protests around the U.S. and around the world. John, we're, we're so glad to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, um, Glad to be here. So, John, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your, your work in peace building? Yeah, I started out kind of working internationally, actually living internationally. Uh, when I was a college student and I went to China in 1983 as, a, as a, an exchange student and, um, you know, taught English in a, in a classroom and uh, kind of uh, drank the Kool-Aid of, of working across cultures and internationally. Uh, ended up in Somalia just as that uh, nation state was crumbling in on itself and uh, into civil war in uh, 87, 88, 89. And, you know, like many started in a kind of a development trajectory and realized that the conflicts that, that so many people face, the violence that so many people face, is undoing kind of any kind of progress toward um, the basics of human security, you know, freedom from fear, freedom from want, and life with dignity. And that working at peace building was even a more primary task. And so kind of got trained in that, um, uh, worked in, in Eswatini, uh, formerly Swaziland, for six years, and then uh, Philippines uh, and working throughout Asia. And, um, and, and, I've, and I've come to see that, that human security might even be a broader umbrella under which peace building, uh, nonviolent direct action, under which, uh, you know, conflict transformation. So many of these terms kind of all live under this, this need for security and, and people-centered security, human security. And so uh, that's where kind of where I find myself today is, is talking about the, the essence and the, and the you know, what's important in, in human-centered security. And I'm very, um, you know, grateful to have been working with GPAC, uh, uh, working with Alliance for Peacebuilding, and, um, and have some great tools for, you know, for doing training and education and, and uh, you know, on this, this very important topic of human security. Since this is actually your second episode on the Peace Corner podcast, and since your last interview, the world has faced a global pandemic. Um, in light of these recent events, how have you personally been affected by the situation and how has your peace building work been affected? Yeah, well, I uh, was in Somaliland uh, right before the, uh, the U.S. closed the European border, so I quick hustled home. And uh, my, my work, you know, a lot of it involves travel, a lot of it involves training face-to-face. And so uh, 
since you know the, the world is kind of shut down we've been finding ways to kind of st still continue with education and uh, the uh, the GPAC uh, Improving Practices Working Group uh, has had a number of, of web training sessions and so that's that's really you know getting up to speed with using Zoom and uh, using Zoom with a hundred people in a training setting trying to have good pedagogy good training kind of <laughs> methodologies is, mm -hmm. uh, is certainly the challenge I think many people have faced in this era. Thanks John. Uh, here at the Peace Corner podcast we've been doing a lot of thinking about human security and what it what it means to feel secure. Right now I'm sitting in Washington DC where there have been protests, I think we're going on the third week against police violence in the US that have spread all across the US and around the world, protests against police brutality, against xenophobia, against racism. And so these protests show that so many members of society don't feel secure. Rather that's our current policing systems, rather it's how we approach security. Can you talk to us a little bit about what people need to feel secure? Yeah, it's interesting to me that in, in this whole kind of upheaval, first of all, with the pandemic, what, what we're seeing is that our hardware-based security it simply isn't up to the task of making us secure. And by hardware, I mean, you know, we've, we've spent enormous sums on weapons, on, on, you know, methods of crowd control, like tear gas and shields and, you know, and, uh, you know, training for violence containment. And yet along comes a virus and proves that we really have misdirected our energies. And, 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 and what does it take to make us feel secure? I, I think it's connection, it's community, it's relationships, it's, it's capacities at a relational level so that, that this, the, this relatively simple conflicts that come along don't explode into violence, uh, but, but communities have a resiliency uh, and a capacity to take those energies of conflict and say, okay, we're going to, you know, now that we have this issue, this challenge, how do we make our community even stronger? And, you know, community is a scalable word, right? We have a global understanding now through the internet, through, <laughs> and certainly through all of our myriad mm -hmm. of Zoom connections, that, that we're connected in a way that we can begin, maybe even for the first time in human history, to think about us in its largest human sense. But I, I don't want to stop there either, because, because our sense of global also needs to take into account that we live in a biosphere, and we are, humans are one species among a myriad of species, and we, we better learn how to get along and to, and to communicate the needs that, that everything in the biosphere needs. And so, you know, we have this consciousness now. So, so when I use the word community, it can be very specific to a, a, you know, a city block, for example, or um, a rural area where people have come together to share uh, produce and that kind of thing, all the way scaled up to, to the, you know, the global nature of the way we understand we. <laughs> what is this word we? And if there are people, uh, people groups, if there are species in the natural world that are missing from this, this consciousness, we're all in trouble. If we endanger one piece within the biosphere, we now understand 
how that impacts and puts at jeopardy everything else and everybody else. And, and um, so, I, I, you know, back to what makes us secure, uh, how can we embrace and celebrate the diversity among us, the people-centric diversity, the, the biospheric diversity, and, and not say, well, one piece of this is for use, you know, uh, for our use, for enrichment or whatever. Um, this is the whole task of, of reframing now. This is the opportunity that the chaos of COVID, that the, the Black Lives Matter um, kind of uh, bringing all of us to a new consciousness is, is demanding. Or one of the main taglines, at least in the protests in the U.S., is around defunding the police. Mm -hmm. And we're sort of in a moment that the phrase like sweeping criminal justice or police reform, which a month ago would seem like a very progressive, forward-thinking line, has now become sort of a centrist view. And so we have people across the country, across the world, sort of rethinking our securitized approach to policing which is something that peace builders have been talking about for years with militarization to say, you know, we, we can prioritize peace building or we should be prioritizing peace building more than we prioritize sort of hard security. That sort of how you said that we're prepared for, or we think we're prepared for violent conflict and then a virus comes around and all of a sudden, you know, throws everything into shambles. So I, I think my follow-up question would be along the lines of when people say defund the police and invest in communities to build true security, what does that mean and what does that look like to you? Yeah, um, in the recent uh, web training I did for uh, Improving Practices Working Group at GPAC, I used a, a diagram I find very helpful from DCAF, uh, the Geneva Center for Security Sector Reform, uh, and it's also the security sector advisory team that, that uh, has a kind of a spectrum of state and non-state actors on a horizontal spectrum and on a vertical spectrum. So you have four quadrants. Um, the vertical is security and justice providers and governance and oversight and management. You know, when we talk about hard security or hardware-based security, we're, we're in the quadrant that, that thinks that military and police, we've deferred, for example, in this country, in the U.S., we've deferred security to the police. And we cannot conceptualize security outside of, well, we have to give them more money. We have to, you know, and, and what do we do? We defund social services and, and some of these other tasks that are far more suited economically, but more importantly, you know, with the, with the whole uh, skill set to work at some of these, these challenges that communities face, you cannot arrest and incarcerate these problems away. And yet, you know, that's, that's what security has become in so many places. I'll give the military more money and more weapons and more whatever, more training, more police officers on the street. When in reality, we have now, we are now expecting police to do things they're never trained or equipped to do. And yet we've defunded the very institutions within our communities to give the police more money. We've defunded those organizations that, that are better suited to do this. So I get the defund police movement and it doesn't say do away with police altogether, but it's, it's it acknowledging that 
Some of these institutions, like the police, like the military, have become so powerful and their lobbies are so great that unless you start over again, they're never going to reform themselves. So, you know, when, when they are reformed, then, then there's a new kind of accountability that can be accountable to the tasks of human security, of people-centered security, as opposed to hardware and, uh, you know, military or police-based security. I suppose my follow-up question would be, where is PeaceBuilders sort of room for maneuver in this space? Like, where is our voice most needed around a human security approach to policing mm-hmm. or shifting security right. away from militarized police systems? So if we think, if, if we look, about, look at the, the overall process of change, you know, how do we get to this place? that I just described, you know, where, where police are defunded, rebuilt from the ground up, and, and robust uh, institutions in communities are now dealing with the challenges that we don't expect the police to do that anymore. How do we get there? It's a change process. Where are peace builders? I find that there's this fascinating resource called the SNAP Guide um, that Alliance for Peace Building, among others, has put together, Lisa Shirk and Nadine Block. So it's, it's, it's the conversation between the nonviolent activists and the peace builders about how, what their place is. And, you know, it's, peace building is kind of that long, long-term imagining what things can become when, when everybody has the security they need. Nonviolent activism is, is, is you know, kind of the, the kinetic way of getting there, whether it's on the streets, whether it's, you know, these creative solutions that are now emerging and challenging these entrenched powers. And, and so, so I think, you know, peace building is, is positioning itself to say, well, we've been thinking about this for a while. Would you like to hear some? And, and, but, it, but engaging with, the, you know, the energy on the streets. And so, you know, it's both a background and, um, and, and speaking in to, to some of these, uh, these energies that are pressing for change. Because the thing about nonviolent activism, if, if it's not strategic, and I, I look at Black Lives Matter and I think there's a case study going on right now of, of really that's been thought through in terms of nonviolence and, and moving a society. I'm just in admiration uh, at the, the, the way in which Black Lives Matter and, and many of the other uh, organizations are pressing for this kind of change. And like you say, moving this agenda into mainstream. So, so I think there's a role there to accompany, to be in solidarity with, to speak into some of the, the, the longer term um, thinking that, that peace building has been doing on you know, security sector reform, uh, on, on justice reform and restorative justice, on truth commissions, um, and, and you know, going back through our history and saying we need to acknowledge these things that happened. These, and, and, and so you know, peace builders have been setting these kinds of truth commissions up for decades. Um, and, and so there's a, a window of opportunity here to accompany that in the U.S. and around the world uh, as police is reformed, as security sector is reformed. So before we started recording, I was telling you about the board that me and my housemates have been keeping that today is mm-hmm. day 104 of the quarantine in our house, that when we go grocery shopping as a house, we, 
we plan it out to send as few people to wear our masks, our gloves, to sanitize everything when we get back. Mm -hmm. um, and that around the world, people have been taking COVID very seriously with their social distancing, with all of the public health education that's been going on. And then we see this, this critical moment with the shooting of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the protests that follow in the U.S. and around the world that even though we've been social distancing for, for four months, that people felt compelled and felt the need to be in the streets side by side um, in huge crowds. Like, when did we think that we were going to be comfortable in crowds again? And then here we are in, in protests um, in, in our third week. And so what, what does this say about the level of insecurity that people around the country and around the world who have been marginalized or who stand in solidarity with those who have been marginalized? Uh, what does this say about the insecurity that they feel? Yeah, and you know, if, if you're in a marginalized group uh, weighing the risks uh, of just being out in the streets before COVID, if you're African-American and, and the risks of, of police violence and brutality uh, versus a, a, you know, a, a virus, uh, some are some are more direct violence and 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 it's seemingly a higher risk and so I, I think there's this you know there's a there's a uh, a coming together here of a lot of pent up energy and that you know this this idea of going out in the streets together this is the this is the opportunity that nonviolent uh, strategy sees. That that it's like it's like uh, all the Legos are scattered out on the table, <laughs> and and COVID has done that to us, right? Like mm -hmm. all the Legos are, are are just pulled apart and scattered on the table. How are we going to build them back together again? And I think there's this this vacuum of opportunity that is being stepped into with the protests and saying some things, all risks considered. Are, are extremely important. And I, I don't know, that's, that's kind of my take on it. Um, and I realize it, it's very limited from, you know, from, from my place in lockdown. And uh, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, recognizing that we're two white guys talking about this yeah. as well. So the, the usual caveat supply. Yeah. Um, yeah. But as far as hierarchy of needs that we're in the middle of a pandemic larger than we've seen ever on a global scale and that this is deeper than that mm -hmm. right. right which sort of leads to sort of what we touched on earlier but what what does dismantling structural violence look like and how do we how do we go about approaching this problem i i think that is an incredibly big question and um yeah, you you had this question to me beforehand, and as I thought about it, you know, part of it is is I'm going to deflect the answer here. <laughs> Go know, for it. it. It's conflict analysis to say, well, what's the entry point for change here? You know, in in the U.S., there was a lot of structural changes in terms of adhering to laws and new laws during the civil rights movement. One thing that didn't change was white culture, white supremacist culture. And, and what didn't change then was, was a serious national look 
at the origins of this nation, right? And so I think structure, so, so I kind of put the question back, where's our entry point for change? I understand that there's individual, there's relational, there's structural, and then there's cultural change. And until we have a cultural change in this country and root out some of these very narrow, exclusive looks at who, you know, who belongs and who doesn't, I, I, I see that's culture. In addition, in the U.S., we're a warring nation, right? We built on wars and projecting our, our power in wars out there, and it's all come home. And so... So, so structural changes uh, until we have some cultural shifts. And again, I think the virus is giving us a, a window of opportunity here to really do some examination. I know uh, as a white and, as, uh, and, and many of my white friends are really doing soul searching and educating themselves right now. Isn't Netflix and Hulu and some of these streaming services, they're doing us a service by offering front and center some of these, these educational pieces. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, social media is, is full of that. So we're beginning to shift culture and to understand the cultural nature of why our structures won't change. And, uh, you know, I'm, it, it's amazing to me how the, the latest, youngest generation just derailed the Tulsa uh, <laughs> the Tulsa rally, mm -hmm. you know, like a few days ago, uh, because they're understanding we don't want this, and how do we use the tools available? How will that bring about structural change? It'll take a concerted effort for lawmakers then to to begin to feel the pressure and and begin to speak the policies we want. Um, so I think. Um, you know, part of our cultural shift will have to be an honest reckoning with Truth Commission type, uh, um, uh, you know, a process here. And there are so many things to air out uh, from, you know, enslavement of people to the way, you know, the Constitution was written for, for white landowning men and, and um, you know, and, and the treatment of, of uh, Native nations and native peoples in this land and, and the, you know, the wars and, and again, incarceration. So those are part of, of new structures. And, you know, when we talk about uh, um, kind of rebuilding things or uh, defunding police, if we might have a lot of financial resources, what's the best way to enact structural and cultural change by re redirecting those funds? The more I work in peace building, the more important I understand kind of the inner transformation mm. is, the, the, the inner work that I must do. And right mm -hmm. now, I just need to sit with, I need to sit with a lot of discomfort mm -hmm. at, at, you know, wanting to do something and yet not wanting to, to do more harm and, mm -hmm. and, and, and figure out, you know, who am I in this? And mm -hmm. what's really important to me? And, and where do I need to go stand silent in solidarity? So sort of last question I wanted to ask as we grapple with some, some big questions, some heavy questions, is where, 
where do you see messages of unity or hope in the world um, that our, our listeners can take home? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I just said uh, standing and listening, uh, standing in solidarity and being silent, right? Yesterday, I was sitting out on the porch on Sunday, and, um, you know, it's in the morning and it's cool. And I look out in our, our yard. Now, we live along a very busy road. And we have, you know, maybe uh, uh, 10 meters to the road, but we have a little grass there. And I look out and here comes plodding through the grass, a, uh, a box turtle. And, and I, I, I thought, a turtle, what are you doing here in my yard in suburbia? <laughs> and, you know, along a busy road here. And I jumped up, I grabbed a box, and I grabbed the turtle, you know, it's about as big as the palm of your hand, and, and uh, put it in the box, and I was going to take it down, there's a lane across the road that goes down to a little stream and creek, and I thought, well, I know what to do with you, and I'm going to take you down, and I got about, again, I got about, you know, 30 meters down that lane, and I thought, what, what am I doing? <laughs> Here's this turtle that was on its way somewhere through my yard, and I thought I knew better. <laughs> mm. I thought I knew where it belonged. How crazy is that? A, did I, did I stop to kind of think through, well, let's see where he's going. Let's, let's strike up a relationship by, by just sitting in and being present as this turtle kind of goes to where it's going. So I turned around and I took it back to the yard and I let it, let it go. And I think it's indicative of at least me as a white male understanding my privilege, uh, the, the power that's been assumed to me, whether I've had it or not, um, and, and, you know, and, and, and to say, wow, how many times in the past have I thought I knew better without ever taking the time to, to be present, to listen? And so, you know, this, this simple box turtle really brought a lesson I think that is again scalable from my individual life through a kind of a collective and a community to the global scale and say, I don't even know how to speak turtle. <laughs> Maybe I better learn, <laughs> you know, if I'm going to learn to listen, I better learn to speak turtle. And so, I, I, you know, just an incredibly powerful lesson brought to me in the unlikeliest of places in the natural world. And, and offered an, uh, an opportunity to reflect on, you know, uh, some of the dynamics that uh, I've been very blind to. So I have a lot of hope that um, uh, there are signs and wonders all around us. There's mystery all around us uh, that, that can give us clues about who we need to be, what we need to do in this moment. Uh, and, and, and one of which maybe is the tiniest uh, minuscule virus. So I, I suppose, la- I know I said the last one was the last question, uh, but yeah. is there anything I should have asked you? I just want to say a little bit about, about the fragility of our times. And, and the, you know, we talked about hardware-based security. I would also like to bring up the whole fragility of our current economic understanding. As, as much as I admire the SDGs from the UN, they are still based on an unsustainable economic system. And what did our own US government do in the face of this virus? 
you know, threw money at it and, and indebted, you know, future generations uh, for, what is it, $3 trillion now? I don't know how much they've spent. It was, it was just a huge amount added to our federal debt. And, and it, it just shows the ineffective nature of economies. And so part of defunding the police is, is actually defunding the economy as we know it. And maybe, again, the virus is, is offering this opportunity to kind of, with all the Legos scattered on the table, to rebuild an economic system that, that you know, maybe is, is more based on livelihood rather than, and than profit. And, you know, we see corporations stepping up to some of this while still existing within this, you know, stock market and, and all of that the understanding that, you know, profit drives the world. So, and I think, you know, the Institute of Economics for Peace is doing us, doing the peace building field and the larger human security field, a lot of favors by the, the kind of the research that they are putting forth. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, GPAC uh, is, is kind of in conversation with IEP now um, to, to, to really put this, uh, this agenda forward and, and to bring, you know, the way we look at economics into the discussions as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Well, it's, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Peace Corner podcast. We amplify the voices that pursue a sustainable peace, especially now in the face of a pandemic. Keep reimagining a better world with us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be listening.